Mindfulness mode. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't been doing yoga and I didn't know how to use breathing to calm myself. I really don't know what I would have done. Hey, Mindful Tribe, it is Christmas Day 2022. And wherever you are or whether you're celebrating Christmas or anything else, I just want to wish you the very, very best. And I want to thank you for being a regular listener of Mindfulness Mode. I appreciate you so much and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm here with an author who has won a very highly acclaimed award as an author. And I'm really excited to talk to her because I, I'm interested in her uh, her idea of mindfulness and how that applies to her as a writer and to her life. I'm here today with Jennifer Steele. She's the author of the book Exile Music, which won a, the grand prize in the Islands 2020 Book Award. So we'll be talking about this. It's uh, it's pretty exciting to have her on the on the show today and to talk about this book and and one previous books is also highly acclaimed as well. Jennifer, are you in mindfulness mode today? I I am now. I, I would say before this call, you know, I, there was a lot of rushing around, but but now I'm just here. Well, that is fantastic. I'm just here too, and I'm I'm excited to be able to devote all of my attention to you and your life as a writer and the mindfulness that fills your life as a writer. Tell me, what does mindfulness mean to you, Jennifer? Mindfulness to me means not living in either the future or the past, which I think is difficult for most of us. I don't struggle as much with the past. I, I have a, I don't tend to turn to the past, but I struggle a lot with the future and the fact that I'm often simply living in my to-do list and, and, and thinking about, well, what's gonna happen next? What do I need to do next? Um, I will be happy when I am this. I'll be happy when I'm that. I will be calm once I've achieved such and such. Um, and so mindfulness to me means not being in that place and just trying to experience rather not trying to experience but just experiencing wherever i am and grounding myself physically to where i am you know what it what's going on in my body um why you know what's going on behind all the the busyness of my brain um i think you know my most important encounter with mindfulness was about a year ago I was hospitalized for anxiety and depression and so it was a bit of a, a crisis situation um, I, I have always been hugely independent I've traveled around the world alone I you know I'm not generally anxious at all about that or about life but um, sometimes things happen and our something in our brain goes um, or in this case, uh, it was triggered by a bad drug interaction. Um, but in the hospital, one of the, the things they taught us was a mindfulness hour where, um, and I'm someone who's really struggled with sitting still all my life. You know, I don't know what I was afraid of, I, I, myself, I suppose. Um, but I took a lot of meditation courses when I was younger. So when I was 14, I took a two week meditation course at school. And the only meditation part that I liked 
Um, I was reading all these books and stuff. But the only meditation I liked was the running meditation because I like to run and that worked for me for a long time. And I think for a long time, that was my way of being in the moment and my way of just being in my body. And it was the only time my brain could just be because once I was done with the run, it was on to the shower and then my homework and then, you know, everything else that I had to do. I'm probably going on too long with that answer. There's just so much. No, it's not not at all. No, I'm, I'm fascinated with so many things that you said, because one of the things that pops into my mind immediately is that that you said you've always had trouble sitting still and 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 taking your time to be that kind of person yet you're a writer an award-winning writer and i would think oh how do those two things fit together how do you become still enough to write the quantity of material that you need to be a successful writer that is a very good question and it is something i struggle with every day I mean, I become still enough by exercising like a maniac beforehand, frankly. I, I need to expend a lot of energy physically um, to enable myself to sit. I've gotten better in that now I can get up and write first thing without having to go out or having to do a lot of exercise. Um, but I think I've been, um, some might say, an over-exerciser much of my life, partly because that allows me to be able to sit down. Um, but the other thing is that I don't always write sitting down. Sometimes I, when we lived in Bolivia for four years, I used to write standing up at my clothing dresser. I'd pull out mm -hmm. one of the drawers, prop one of my feet on it to help my lower back and then write standing up. And that, that helped me a lot. I've been moving around too much lately to have a proper desk, you know, a standing desk, a, um, something that I could go up and down on, which, which helps me. I've got spinal problems. So Mm -hmm. You know, sitting is difficult because of that. And right now, actually, everything's <laughs> everything's difficult because I've recently had major surgery. And so any kind of movement is tough. Um, and you would think that would help me with sitting still. And yet in the hospital, I couldn't be still like no situation was comfortable and I, I couldn't stop moving. And I think probably because my body's just used to so much movement. And when I was confined to a hospital bed, it it said, this is not okay with me. <laughs> I need to be doing things. Um, I was thinking this morning, actually, where does this all come from? Where's the beginning of my busyness and my need for productivity at all times? And thought, you know, I had these very New England parents. I still have these very New England parents, thankfully, um, who raised me with a very strong Puritan work ethic. You know, any moment of the day that wasn't productive, you, know, you had to work, you had to do chores. And, you know, the, I had to try to read without my mother catching me lying on the couch reading because she would assign me a task <laughs> okay that wasn't enough of a task to be doing that was like you're taking a you're taking a break you're sloughing off right right i mean relaxing in front of my mother was an affront <laughs> wow um wow yeah what do you love most doing uh you must love writing quite a bit you love running you told me that what do you love most the activity in your life that you enjoy the most talking with my daughter i think ah. would be my very favorite activity i have a 12 year old mm -hmm. who's about to turn 13 in a few days um and they are my favorite person and I mean, aside from my husband, just different kinds of love. And I love talking to Theo and I always have since they were a child, just because 
just watching a perspective on the world that is far fresher than my own and watching how Theo has come to grips with certain ideas and thoughts and the way they've expressed themselves and the way their expression has changed over the years. And I think when I'm with my daughter, I think this is where I'm meant to be. I am, wow. I'm, I'm good being here and I will talk, you know, right now, they don't always want to talk to me because they're an adolescent and their friends are more important and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so when I have time with them, I think I will let this go on as long as, as my child will let me go on listening or talking um, because it just feels like a good place to be. But writing also feels that way. I do love writing, but sitting, getting to the desk is the tough part. What is the most profound thing you've learned from Theo? Ah, oh, that's a, such a good question. Um, how to live with constant fear, maybe, maybe I think, you know, I knew that becoming a parent was not a walk in the park, but what I didn't anticipate, or at least couldn't anticipate on an emotional level was the vulnerability you have when a piece of yourself is walking around in the world apart from you and could possibly get into danger, could be hit by a car, could fall off a bike, could get cancer. I have four close friends who've lost children to cancer. And so I am wow. aware of how fragile life is and how, you know, you, none of us know how long we have, how long we have with the people we love. And so I mean, I guess that makes it all the more important that when we're with them, we are with them. Um, and we don't say, well, I'll see them later when I'm done with work. I'll see them later. I suppose this is why, unlike a lot of writers I know, I do, I do let my daughter inter interrupt my work probably too much um, because I don't always want to keep her at bay. <laughs> right. Of course. Well, you're, this is very fascinating how to live with constant fear because your book exile music is the incredibly captivating story of a young Jewish girl whose family flees from Vir Vienna and goes to the mountains of Bolivia. And they I'm sure had tremendous fear as they fleed. And did you, pour some of that fear that you feel into the writing of this book? I suppose it's present in almost almost everything I, I do and I write. And 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 Thea was one of was a big inspiration for that book. And the, I started the writing of that book with one scene. Um, I was imagining what it was like to be a small child in Austria as Hitler and the Nazis were closing in on my family. And my daughter at the time had invented this imaginary world called bunny belts. And she developed it in a lot of detail and said that that's where she lived before she came to live in my belly um, and had this whole life in this country. And, and this was around the time I was starting the book. And I thought if I were in a situation like that in Europe, as the world was closing in on me, I would need an imaginary world to retreat into. And because of that fear, and you know, a child wouldn't have been able to understand what was going on, just that they would absorb the fear. And so that imaginary world was her way of coping with that fear. 
Um, and maybe my daughter's way of coping with the fear that there was a time that she didn't exist. I mean, that was a concept that at three, she could not absorb that there is a time when there was no Theodora. <laughs> right. So in the book, Annalise is a very important character. And tell me how Annalise happened in your mind and how she fits in with your life with your daughter, if she does. Well, so she happened because, you know, I had been enjoying listening to my daughter create this life all on her own. She's an only child. Um, and I found as a writer, it very, the, the, the creative part of, of world building that she was doing really interesting. Um, she had, you know, a, there was a queen of bunny belts, but also a president who she made a hermaphrodite because she wanted them to be equally male and female. And um, Theo now identifies as non-binary. So it was interesting that at three, that the person had to be both male and female. And there were countries bordering them that were hostile and things like that. And so when I began with my, my main character, I knew my main character was gonna be this girl named Orly. I thought, well, it's not that interesting for me to write about a girl sitting around by herself coming up with this world. It's much more interesting if she's in conversation with someone. And yes. That's how Annalisa came into being because Orly needed someone to talk to. And I, I have at many points in, in my daughter's life observed her loneliness because we keep moving countries and taking her away from friends. And there have been times of acute loneliness. And I think you know, Annalisa in a way came from that, like she's the friend that I wanted Theo to have. And it's very funny because the, when Theo read, Theo's now read the whole book, but when they read one of the early scenes with Annalisa, when we had just moved to Uzbekistan from London and they'd been removed from all their close friends and were someplace where they didn't have any friends, um, they came into my office crying and saying, why can't I have a friend like Annalisa, why? <laughs> Mm. Um, and I mean, that's partly, I guess, why I created her so that Orly would have someone. And how old was she when she first started sharing bunny belts with you? Three, I think. <clears throat> Sorry. Wow. Three years old. And, and she started sharing this. And, and at first, what were your first thoughts and reactions to that? Oh, my first, first thoughts and reactions are always, I have to write this down. That's okay. always my first thing. I mean, I took notes um, on Bunny Bells. I probably have a whole document on Bunny Bells somewhere because I knew she'd forget it at some point and I didn't want it to be forgotten. So, um, but I mean, it's interesting, like my daughter, because very early on was attached to bunnies of all kinds. And so whenever I travel far away from her, I bring her back a bunny. So she had like this family and she named them all and they all had personalities and if we needed to know what was going on in our daughter's heart or her mind, we just needed to watch her play with these bunnies because at one point we were visiting my parents. My parents had met us in Ireland and we were visiting them there. And I had recently had appendicitis and I had an appendectomy and she was two and I couldn't pick her up. And for her, this was traumatic. I couldn't pick her up and she would be, she was so upset about the fact that I couldn't pick her up. And so, you know, all her bunnies suddenly came down with appendicitis and Mama Bunny, who was the first of the bunnies, said to the baby bunnies, I'm very sorry, I can't pick you up right now. I just, I, you know, I just had appendicitis. And, you know, and so my dad just watched her like do this. And she's like, he said, it's really easy to tell what's on Theodora's mind. Like we just need to sit and watch her, what she does with the bunny. And that's how she was processing 
the pain of not being able to be picked up by her mother. Um, wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> now, so you wrote the entire book, you finished it, you put it out there. And what was your first reaction when you found out that you had won the grand prize in the Islands 2020 Book Awards? I was standing in the kitchen of our only permanent home, which is in France. Um, <clears throat> I think I'm trying to think what, when exactly I would have found out whether I was, I think it may have been a time when, so my, my husband works for the foreign office and is currently posted to Uzbekistan. So that's where my family is currently living. Um, Hence why you're moving so much. That's why we're moving so much. And right. I mean, right now I'm actually in London um, because I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in April. And so I'm in treatment here in London and I've had to spend the past year apart from my family, which has been definitely the hardest year of my life and has also made me think a lot more about how we spend our time. Um, and the preciousness of, <clears throat> sorry, I keep swallowing the wrong way. That's okay. Um, how we spend each moment and, um, there's a lot of pressure. I think when you're diagnosed with cancer to say, oh, okay, now every moment has to be meaningful. How can I make this moment meaningful? Yes. And that in itself is just another pressure. You know, sometimes you have to give yourself permission to not be meaningful and to, to waste time. Um, and, and it depends on your definition of wasting time. Exactly. As well, it? Exactly. I mean, I was using kind of waste time in, per, in quote, yes. quotation marks. Um, yeah. But it definitely, you know, especially like when I'm away from my daughter, I think this is terrible. I, um, so one, one thing a, a friend suggested to me was, okay, is there any possible way that you can live with Tim and Theodore right now? And Tim and I have gone through every possible way that we could cope with this situation. And there is really no other way for us right now. We can't afford to live in London. We can't afford for Tim to quit his job. We can't, we don't want to move Theodore in the middle of the school year. And so this is the best we can do. And so someone suggested to me, you need to just practice radical acceptance. Like this is where you are. It sucks, but you can't find another solution to this. So this is how you're going to live until the treatment is finished. And maybe you let go of wanting it to be otherwise. And maybe that's another part of mindfulness is not wanting to be things to be otherwise. I think it is. And I think in your book, you know, you described their incredibly challenging journey and you're on a challenging journey right now. And uh, there seems to be a parallel there, doesn't there? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to compare myself at all with what my characters endured. Um, you know, this is quite different. Of course. I mean, I'm not. Of being course. It's very yeah. different. I'm being persecuted by my own body. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, what's interesting to me is the anxiety and depression that I was hospitalized for disappeared when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I find that really interesting because my, my brain had something more imminent to deal with. And so it stopped spinning. 
-hmm. it just thought, okay, now we have something kind of more imminent facing us and we have to turn our attention to that. And the anxiety just dropped away. I'm not recommending cancer as a cure for anxiety, but, um, <laughs> no. um, but it was really interesting to just observe that in myself and to see that actually the cancer diagnosis, at least for the initial months um, before it kind of settled in and I realized how horrific everything was going to be in terms of the treatment, it almost calmed me and grounded me. And I was like, okay, right, what's the treatment? What do we need to do? Because there were physical things we need to do, physical things that needed to happen, surgery, chemo, more chemo, et cetera. Um, and that grounded me. Um, and it also made it all the more important to me that I find a way to meditate. Um, and, you know, I think I started meditating when I was going through that period of high anxiety. And because I just struggled to just sit down alone and do it, I, I tend mm -hmm. not to, if that's the option. Yeah, but if yeah. I have an app, like um, I have the Calm app on my phone, right? and I can use some of those guided meditations, some of which are for sleep, which is often a problem for me, right. some of which are for anxiety. So I've used the meditations for panic, for anxiety. And then I went through um, Jeff Warren, who's one of the people on that. There's several different teachers there. Um, he has a How to Meditate class basically as is part of that app and it's just 10 minutes a day and 10 minutes a day feels doable it's sure it's not an hour it's it's 10 minutes and so whenever i'm trying to think well i trying to argue myself out of it i'm like look it's 10 minutes you can do it um and then jeff is very just down to earth um funny uh and and just is really useful for me to, I need guided meditation, I guess is what I'm saying. I need someone to talk me through it. And then they, you know, they, he lets, he goes silent and, and lets me carry on with my breathing or my mantra or whatever it is I'm doing um, and just teaches all these different techniques. And I, I just, I'm now doing it for the second time. And I do find that a good way to wake up. It does start my day differently because I, I tend to wake up and immediately panic about all the mm. things I have to do or, or all the drugs I have to take or the fact that I'm going to chemo that day, you know, but if I have those 10 minutes, I get out of bed with my muscles slightly more relaxed and I just feel slightly more equal to whatever the day is going to ask of me. And so I, I am trying to, I say this having skipped meditation this morning. So I'm really feeling guilty about that. I feel like I have to confess that, but I did it yesterday and, um, yeah, I, I will do it. Um, it, I, it is useful to me and often life-saving. And in the middle of the night, the back to sleep meditations are life-saving to me. They just give me something to do when I don't want to turn on the light and read, but I just don't want my brain turning in on itself. Then I turn on that. And it is, there's a lot of kind of the mindfulness they did in the hospital with us was we'd be lying on a mat and the teacher it was just the most incredibly boring thing I've ever done in my entire life, but in, it was so calming um, in that, you know, she'd say, okay, focus on the left side of your body, then just your left big toe, then the toe next to that, and then the toe next to that. And then, you know, and she'd go very slowly through every single part of our body. Um, and just focusing on that, on that 
the rest of me kind of dropped in. You kind of drop into your body. Your brain has something to do, so it's it doesn't doesn't really have time to go spin into anxieties and to do lists and things like that because you have to think about your toe, or at least right. notice your toe. <laughs> It sounds like the meditation experience was very powerful. Do you still do any kind of movement meditation? Well, I mean, since, let's see, since around 2009, which was when I got pregnant. So I was, I started doing yoga. So I resisted yoga for a long time because I thought, you know, yoga involves stillness. I'm not good at that. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I was a runner until injury forced me to stop running. And then I was a swimmer until injury forced me to stop swimming. And then, you know, then I was trying to get pregnant and it was difficult. And so I did fertility pregnancy, which involved a lot of sitting around and trying to become rounded. <laughs> okay. um, so, uh, but then I did pregnancy yoga, which was a bit more, a bit more athletic because I tend towards those kinds of yoga. And got, I got really into vinyasa flow, which is a pretty active kind of yoga. But for me, is meditation, especially if it's if there's a teacher talking me through it, I can just move, and I don't have to worry about what I'm doing next because the teacher's telling me. Um, and I still, up until surgery, so that was about seven weeks ago, I was doing yoga every day. Um, I can't do it yet right now. Um, I can walk as long as I want. So I'm walking eight miles a day, which is a kind of meditation in a way, except I also listen to podcasts on my walk, which is not really meditation, but can be therapeutic. Sure it can. Yeah. So tell us more about vinyasa flow and tell me what that entails. And because our leader, our, our listeners will be very interested in that. So the reason I chose vinyasa flow is it was, it's a kind of yoga that, that involves constant movement pretty much. It's not, lots of i mean there are some vinyasa flows that have more longer holds than others but my first experience with it was actually here in london at a place called jiva mukti and that it felt very athletic and very so it but i mean like all yoga it's about working with the body you have not the body you wish you had so there's always ways to do it for whatever body you have and whatever shape you're in but I just like the fact that I was in constant movement, that every part of my body was used and there's all the stretching built in. Because if someone doesn't talk me through the stretching and doesn't tell me that I need to lie down and do Shavasana at the end, I am not gonna do it. Um, in fact, I was doing yoga with a friend of mine in France, um, an Australian novelist, um, Martine Murray, and she was a neighbor of mine in our village for a while. And she was a yoga teacher, so I do yoga with her. And we could, we'd lie down at the end and do shavasana, and then I would get up and say, "Okay, I've got stuff to do, whatever." And she finally said to me, "Jennifer, you suck at shavasana." Um, and um, <laughs> and I was like, "You're right, I do suck at shavasana." And so I was like, "I, you know, to make myself stay on my mat for those moments of rest is hard for me, but also all the more important because it's hard for me." Um, because I, 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 you know, I think my, my cancer therapist said to me recently, he said, do, do you think of yourself as a human doing rather than a human being? Um, and I said, yes, that is exactly how I think of myself. 
<laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what next? Are you working on another book? Are you doing much writing these days? I am. I'm I kind of am doing a lot of things not at the same time, but I'm in the middle of a book that's set in Uzbekistan that I'm really, really excited about. Um, and I want to get back to Uzbekistan to finish researching that book. Um, it's a novel and it's maybe halfway written, maybe a third written. Um, I never know till I'm done how long it's going to be. Um, so I'm working mm -hmm. on that. I finished a book for as part of a PhD in creative writing. So um, that one's done and I need to send it out um, to agents. Uh, and then I've been writing. So my second thought after being diagnosed with cancer um, after the initial shock was, wait, does this mean I have to write a cancer memoir? Because there's so many and there's so many good ones and I didn't want to write about cancer. It's not a topic I wanted to immerse myself in. And yet, you know, cancer made me immerse myself in it. So while not wanting to write about cancer, I've been writing about cancer every single day since March. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been my therapy. And that time, you know, I can get, I, after I do my 10 minutes of meditation, I sit down and I write in the morning. And that the first thing I do is, is the journal, like, because so many things happen to you during cancer. And some of them are funny, like the conversation I had with a lawyer about my will and, uh, which was actually funny. Um, <laughs> and um, I've written about it on, like, there's a, I keep a blog just to update my friends and families on what, what, what's happening to me um, on caring bridge, which is a site uh, for ill people to allow their family members to check in because that saves me from having to write a hundred emails to everyone and say, right. and is that blog available to anyone or just family? Um, there aren't. Yeah, it's, it's available. I mean, if you go on the caring bridge site and look for me, you'll find it. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, out there for the public. I I mean, there are there are clearly parts of my journal that were personal and I, I redacted. I, <laughs> redacted right, sure. like on my computer. Um, but anything that's there, I don't mind being out in the world. So um, I put it there. So anyone who's interested in how I'm doing or whether I'm done with chemo or how surgery went, they can just look there. And it's 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 such a useful thing. I mean, I recommend it to anyone who's ill and struggling to keep their friends and family updated because when you're really sick, like after chemo, when I just don't get out of bed for a week, I cannot send an email. I cannot update people. I can't answer texts. I just don't have the energy or the wherewithal. And sure. So, you know, just if I can write something once, um, then, you know, people will know how I'm doing more or less. Right. And well, at one point you were part of a conceptual art, installation and you wrote a, uh, an essay entitled roses after rain tell us about that experience oh right so that book was an anthology put together from my my by my friend Haida hatry um she's a german artist living in new york and she's exceptionally talented and she does shows all over the world um so all i really did for that anthology was contribute that essay um which which i think that so the theme of the book was flowers and i Actually, this is interesting that you bring up that because what I wrote about was the way that my daughter experienced flowers, because for me, 
I always experience flowers as a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> this, you know, okay. um, yeah. So yeah. like, for example, when I gave birth to my daughter, people would come over and they'd bring flowers and I would think, oh my God, now I have to find a vase and fill it with water. And then the water is going to get gunky and I'm gonna have to change it. And then I have to throw it out and then I have to find a way to recycle the flowers. And I have enough things to look after right now. I have a newborn baby. How could you possibly think I have time to change flower water? And I would, you know, not, I you know, would never say this to anyone, no, you no. know, because I know like their heart's in the right place and flowers are pretty and it's nice but I just flowers exhaust me but the way my daughter enjoyed flowers when she was still young enough to be in a, a, a pram a stroller is that we would be walking to the gym or something and she would just run her fingers around them letting the dew from the roses kind of come off in her hands and just experiencing the joy of the flowers and then when we get to the gym she was in a different place but she was very present with the flowers like I enjoy the flowers in this moment and watching the way that she um, touched the roses after the rain, I think the essay is called Roses After Rain, it was just, it was this moment, it, it reminded me of um, that probably overquoted Blake poem, um, you know, kiss the joy as it flies, that's one of the lines, you know, and, and actually Theo and I talk about this, about like that we can't always hold on to our happy moments, that we sometimes just have to kiss them as they fly by and um, not try to like I used to think about this with people every person I met I used to try to keep I, I wanted to exchange letters with them or emails and and it was only pretty recently that I thought you know what I can connect with someone and then not stay in touch with them for the rest of my life that's okay sure I can just enjoy them when I enjoy, enjoy the moment yeah. yes absolutely and that's hard for me because I want to kind of chain them to me but there's too many people in the world you know <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. So did that essay change your perception of flowers? And of course, Theo change your perception of flowers? It, I mean, it did. Um, and yet I still kind of sometimes find them a pain. Yeah, I like them. They're pretty, which you're entitled to, yeah. if, you know, if that's you, that's part of you. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. But it is interesting that that you took that on as such a negative that it was such a burden really yeah i mean it's interesting i mean i have a friend actually who had multiple open heart surgeries and she hated flowers because the smell of flowers reminded her of being in the hospital mm -hmm. um and so that i get too um and, and i i love flowers i think they're great but i also feel bad when they're cut i want them to still be alive and so there's a there's a kind of sadness that comes with them too because i think they're so beautiful and they're dead yeah. um and so i mean our christmas tree for example is alive um it's a, it's in a pot and it's kind of small and scraggly looking and we try to celebrate christmas in france when we can because that's our only permanent home and then when we leave we give our little tree to our german neighbors and they look after it till the next christmas when we come over and say can we have our tree back please and <laughs> decorate it. oh that's cool and they give it back to them so yeah oh that's really cool that's really cool one of the questions i always ask on in my interviews is about bullying and i like to do that because i've worked in bullying prevention for a long time and i find that there's a very close relationship between mindfulness and bullying and i just wonder if you have a story you can share 
It could be from childhood. It could be from adulthood. It could be as a writer. Any story that you could share about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? That's a really good question. And I was actually thinking before this chat that I wanted to ask you these questions because, um, I mean, I can talk about my my own experiences, but I mostly, when you know, my daughter has actually had a terrible time in three different schools with bullying and I felt quite powerless to help. I mean, we got the school involved, we got teachers involved, and yet, and yet it didn't help and we couldn't help. Mm. And, and so for that, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on how to help a child who's in that situation. I think when I was growing up, I never heard the word bullying. I don't think, it, you know, we were, we just didn't talk about it the way we did. No, I didn't either. Yeah. So I never heard about it, but there were, when I look back at my childhood, I, I mean, I was not a popular child. I had no social skills whatsoever. I was bookish. I was awkward. Um, and people made fun of me a lot. And, you know, I don't know. I just remember even like in the girls room in like third grade, like girls climbing over the top of the stall to make fun of me like, you know, on the toilet, that's just, mm -hmm. and then, you know, they'd make up rhymes about me on the playground. Mm -hmm. And, and then I remember in seventh grade, you know, they made fun of me because I did well in school, which was not a popular thing to do. I mean, in one positive thing I see in my daughter's schools is actually the most popular kids also are the most, are the ones who work the hardest. And I'm like, that, that was not the case when I was little, it was cool to be a slacker. It was not cool to work hard. Right. Yeah. A lot of things have changed and continue to change on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Things just keep changing and evolving. And, you know, when my, I was always concerned that my son may be uh, bullied because, well, um, I was older when my wife and I became parents. And then I, I just thought, oh my gosh, as a teacher, I'm like, oh, I had seen this. I had seen kids being bullied and how tormented they could be. And I thought, oh, that is one thing I do not want for my son. What can I do to prevent this? What can I possibly do? Oh, well, I don't know enough about bullying. I could immerse myself in this. I could become the person who teaches about this. What better way to learn? than to learn how to teach a subject and write about it. And that's what I did. And so I ended up doing almost 2000 presentations, speaking from the stage, all about this, just learning as I went. And when my son was eight years old, he said, Dad, don't worry, I'll never be bullied. And I said, what, what do you mean? Like, why do you think that? Well, because the only way I would be bullied is if I got upset when somebody said something or did something. And they can say something, they can do something, and I'm just not going to get upset. It's just not going to happen, you know. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And so he's never felt as though he's ever been bullied. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. I mean, my daughter has not changed her behavior because of bullies. She remains who she is. And I think that's who they are. I think that's a sign of 
of strength, but at the same time, they are quite sensitive to, you know, they do get very upset when kids are unkind to them. They're Of course. Um, I can totally understand myself. I mean, I'm a sensitive person and, and you know, I, I totally understand that, how Theo would be very upset if students are, you know, you, being cruel. You know, um, can I tell you one, one related thing, but on the, on the other end, kind of, when Theo was four, they started a new school. It was big. It was different from her tiny little Bolivian nursery. She was moving to the big French school and she was only four. Mm -hmm. And we'd just been in a catastrophic car accident. So she'd been through the trauma of that. So she was starting a new school. And one day, one of the parents told me that my daughter had shoved her daughter. Um, and I was so upset, so upset that my daughter, because it, I worried about my daughter being bullied. I hadn't thought to worry that she'd be a bully, right? Mm -hmm. And so yes. I was suddenly scared about this. I thought, oh my God, maybe I've misunderstood my child. And, and you know, what is this? Um, and so on the way home, like I yelled at her. I was like, how could you do this? This is terrible, blah, 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 blah. And then I got home and I thought, you know what? Actually, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm probably doing it wrong. So. I just went to Google and like looked up how to deal with your child bullying, blah, blah, blah. And it was really interesting. What I remember reading was when a child does that, it means that they are feeling threatened by the world, overwhelmed, scared. Um, you know, they're coping with, with that fear. And so everything feels threatening and that's why they lash out. And so it's really important that you don't yell at them. And I thought, okay, I've already made a big mistake, but we all make mistakes parenting, right? It's like, yes. so they're like, please, you know, don't yell at them. What you need to do is say, is reassure your child that you love them unconditionally and then say, but this behavior is unacceptable. And can we talk about other behaviors that might be a better way of dealing with the way you feel around this person? And so I just remember that night in the bath, sitting with, Theodora, who was only four, and saying, okay, so I just want you to know, um, I'm sorry I yelled at you earlier. You, I love you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to change that. I will always love you. It is not okay to hit anyone or to shove anyone. So, you know, how did this girl make you feel? Um, why do you think you shoved her? You know, what could you have done differently? Um, and she named three things. She said, well, I could move away. I could mm -hmm. talk to a teacher. I could, you know, I can't remember what the third one was, but mm -hmm. um, that was my first bit of learning about bullying and just talking to my child about it because, I mean, she's never, it never happened again, like never. Um, and so I don't know if, but, but I did have to ask for help. I just didn't know how to deal with that. Which is just part of being a parent like you already said yeah for sure yeah my son did have an incident when he was probably eight uh and uh he dealt with it and i was kind of like oh wow he, he was aggressive in this particular instance and he was never bothered again and it turned out that okay that was probably the best thing he could have done in that particular moment in time you know but very interesting 
uh, thank you so much for your insight on this. And as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Uh, Glennon Doyle, the author of Untamed. Um, I am obsessed with her podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. Um, I listen to it almost every day. Um, so yes, she's just the way that she and her sister and her wife, Abby, talk about mindfulness is, is um, and their struggles with, so because some of their struggles are my struggles, struggles with sitting still, struggle with hating meditation, struggle with blah, blah, blah. So and what did you say Glenna Doyle's book was called? Untamed. Untamed. She's written several books, but that's her most recent. Right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And that was going to be one of my questions was about a book. So oh, can I... yeah, Glenna Doyle, Untamed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go I ahead if you have another one. I wanted to recommend in particular um, sure. the journal that comes with Untamed. Or it doesn't come okay. with it. You order it separately. But the sure. journal is a place for... You know, there's lots of space in it for writing and that is an amazing way to examine the forces that have shaped you as a human and why you feel like you need to keep busy why you feel like you need to conform to social norms why you you know so that the journal is i would particularly recommend it's just a really good thing to kind of learn more about yourself good way to learn about do you think this journal and this book is more specifically intended for a certain group of people for women or for a certain group or for anyone i think anyone anyone okay um interesting probably most of her readers tend to be women but i think men should read her all the time mm -hmm. i mean i think the world would be a better place if men listen to her podcast every day frankly um very interesting yeah. very interesting well my second question is about emotions and if you can describe how mindfulness may have changed how you deal with your emotions I suppose I'm less anxious, um, less, I'm more able to ground myself in moments of panic, whatever kind, whatever I'm panicking about. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it helps me be less reactive and less defensive, and maybe a better listener. That's not an emotion, right. but anyway. Interesting. Let's talk about breathing. Have you got any comments on breathing or the role breathing plays in your life as it's related to mindfulness? Yes. Um, this is not a story I can tell in 30 minutes, but I was kidnapped at gunpoint when six months pregnant and it was yoga breathing that saved me and my daughter. And I remind her of this oh every time God. she makes fun of me when I'm doing yoga, I say yoga saved your life. Ujjayi breathing saved your life. Like, um, because it helped me, um, I, because of the stress of that situation, I was having premature contractions and I was worried I was about to lose her. And so I had to mm -hmm. calm down. It was a matter of life or death, literally that I had to calm yes. down. And I, you know, that was the only way I knew how to calm myself down is breathing. Um, wow. That must've been so traumatic. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time writing through that one. Oh, I can believe it. Yeah. I can believe it. Well, my last question is about uh, apps, and you already really answered that, unless there's another app that you want to share with us. Um, you already told us about your experience with apps. Yeah, I, I mean, Calm is the only one I really use regularly. Mm -hmm. I think because I don't, 
it seems to me like to get any benefit from a lot of these apps, you do need to pay for premium. And I just can't afford to do that from more than one app. Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't feel brand loyal. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to try other things. It's just, sure. um, I, I will probably get bored with it at some point and, and want something different, but, but it's been really helpful to me. Jennifer, we didn't talk about your other book, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, but congratulations on winning the award for for your book, Exile Music. That must have been so exciting, and it's been exciting for me to have this opportunity to talk to you for this length of time. Thank you for being on the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, it's Bruce here. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I just appreciate you as my Mindful Tribe listener so much. And, you know, I want to ask you a question. Are you going through any kind of challenges right now, especially at this season, you know, as you look around and you see all the colored lights and you hear the Christmas music or the celebration music, and are you feeling like, why don't I feel joy and happiness and peace and contentment. I talked about it on my last episode. And, you know, there are so many people hurting. And that's one of the things I love about the work I do is I'm able to talk to people and help people through some of these challenges. And one of the things that has made a huge difference is that I've learned hypnosis, as you know, and I help people using hypnosis to get to a better place and you know you have your conscious mind you have your subconscious mind and there are things uh, being said over and over and over in your subconscious mind and a lot of times that stuff that's being said is not very positive it's not very kind that's why I call it your inner bully so you know maybe you're blaming yourself for the way you're feeling maybe you're blaming yourself for the pain that you're experiencing the emotions that you're going through and uh, you know it's something that you do not need to suffer with you don't deserve to suffer with this you deserve to have peace and contentment you deserve to feel good in your life you deserve it let that thought resonate with you you deserve happiness you deserve a feeling of peace and contentment but do send me an email bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and put in the subject line transition because you can make the transition to a better place and if you are in an awesome place right now way to go that's awesome that's fantastic i'm happy for you and you know i'm also happy because i have a new sponsor and uh, that's palm wonderful you may have heard an ad on this episode about that but palm wonderful is a a terrific product that can help you to be more healthy and help you to really feel good and be energized and so uh, notice the ad that i put on about that and with that take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode